A warm welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective of experienced M&A professionals located in Europe, the US, Asia, and the UK. We know each other professionally and personally, having worked on many deals around the globe together. For more information on the voices you'll hear, please go to our website. Every couple of weeks, we'll be discussing a topic or a deal that's hitting the headlines of M&A currently. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And perhaps most importantly, what should leadership be doing? And what might we do differently? As anyone who knows us or has dealt with us would say, we're never short of an opinion. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, there are four of us with you today. We have Ben, Paul and Abe. Their profiles will be in uh, the notes. So today's call is about a couple of things. We're focusing, first of all, on the World Pay Fizz. Have I got that right? Do we say fizz? So World Pay and Fizz and the interesting article in the Financial Times, which compared it to the first uh, FI serve first data uh, deal, which I uh, uh, interestingly was conducted at the same time so it's this beautiful situation very rare in MA, where you have two similar deals you can actually do a compare or contrast and see what happened uh, but also it will be interesting to reflect back on the ey separation uh, we spoke about that a couple of weeks ago and it's been very interesting to read in the paper how that turned out so where should we start who wants to kick us off today uh, i'm happy to kick it off as always david um, so uh, just on the Fizz World Pay, I, I, I've done a little bit of research into it. And it's always, you know, it's always nice to, to look at some of the early statements about what the, the opportunity behind this deal might be. Uh, there's a fantastic video um, uh, which talks to that case. And, and interestingly enough, first time probably that I've, I've really had a journalist challenge um, the, in this case, the CFO of of um, Fizz uh, about two things. Firstly, she challenged him on the the completeness of the Vantive WorldPay integration process. In fact, suggested that they were integrating three companies, not two, which he batted away uh, quite considerably. The second thing that he said was, "This is a very complementary deal, and therefore the integration." There's not much heavy lifting in terms of the integration process. And then he he put out some numbers in terms of um, the cost synergies that they were going to achieve and the revenue synergies. And in particular, the thing that struck me, which I thought was extraordinary. So the cost synergies are about 400 million, revenue synergies about half a billion. Um, but the thing that struck me most, and all of us who've been involved in this, was he was projecting an organic growth of between 8 and 9% in the sort of three to five years post-deal. Uh, in this transaction. So it, it goes back to the, the hoary old beast that we've talked about a lot in the past, which is the concept of over-optimism um, in an integration journey. And I think in particular, the cost synergy thing, I think was a fascinating number, because if you think you're sitting in WorldPay and Vantive, you've just completed an integration process, you would expect that there would have been a lot of focus on cost 
takeout already in that process. And to therefore suggest they're going to take another just short of half a billion uh, dollars out as part of this transaction just seems wildly over-optimistic. Um, so that was, that was I thought, was was interesting uh, that we're dealing with that, that, piece, that piece. He also commented that the culture is very similar, which seems to be a sort of get-out-of-jail clause when you get asked a difficult question about what the integration is going to look like. Uh, leadership quite often goes, oh, we, you know, we get on really well and our cultures are really um, um, in tune with each other. So those are the things I was I was struck by. You're right, David. We talked a bit about the sort of history. You know, it wasn't just FI Surface Data. You know, there were a whole bunch of other deals that took general payments did, did a deal. You know, before so this sort of scale above everything else seemed to be the other thing that um, that may have led to a, a slightly flawed strategy, let alone integration. Well, let me let me jump into that. I mean, this is uh, Ben to your point, an interesting a case study because you have a control. Because had we not had the control, I would have said, look, there doesn't appear to be a lot in common between providing payments technology to banks and providing payment technology in merchants. And so maybe the fundamental thesis made some, no sense. And the fact that two different competitors did it at roughly the same set of times sort of eliminates that, right? Because if they both, because it doesn't explain why one is doing worse than the other. And so this is almost a uh, unicorn because you don't get controlled case studies ever in the wild. And uh, this happens to be an example of it. So I actually feel like this could be a, a deeper business school case study at some point uh, about the integration. Do we know how, how Pfizer did their integration? Do we know anything about how the other side did it? Or do we just know about FIS and WorldPay and what went wrong there? I don't have any nothing I've seen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. So the, the reason they're saying you've got this control and actually it hasn't worked on the world pay for, uh, for this side is the organic growth rates where world pay organic growth rates uh, for the last year has been around flat, well, it's been 0%, whereas um, first data have managed to retain a 10% growth rate. So it's the underlying organic growth rates of the those businesses they've acquired that's the cause for the different valuations of the businesses so let's let's unpack that david because you know i was looking at the same chart and like you said for whatever reason pfizer on the merchant side has been able to continue to grow whereas for whatever reason fis's merchant which is the old world pay business is basically stalled and so the the in, is the integration is the in, do you think the integration caused that stall that's the that's the presumptive sort of hypothesis here, right? Um, that we're that we're leaning into, and it seems that what when this happens, what you see is the people who are generating revenue disappearing, right? So did they? I guess you know the, the article mentions like did they get the right incentives in place for the merchant sales force and the the merchant side of the business to you know continue to generate revenues because you could certainly see people just disappearing saying i don't really like what this organization's all about anymore i mean it isn't the ultimate human issue that if they weren't able to i think if they kept the people and they were equivalently motivated it would be hard to stall revenue growth in the merchant business which is actually sort of a fast-growing business historically right as 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 it shows so something definitely went wrong because you don't go from june 2021 to September 2022 and go from 40% growth rate year over year or whatever to zero. 
you really have to work at that. But, but Abbe, is it sufficient to keep the people who are who are generate who were generating the growth of the business? I mean, if you if you're acquiring a business, unless you can do something better than it does today, you're paying the full price. And why would you buy that business? No, you're exactly there's right. No, there's no value creation. Um, so there, it seems they've actually done worse than, than historically. Yeah. Um, but I think that the gap in the reasoning is there's no real benefit for the for the end user experience because these are different sets. So they just want to sort of expand uh, in in a kind of technology. Uh, but why would they do it better? And unless they figure that out, you shouldn't be buying the business. But Paul, what what the numbers show, Paul, and I agree with you. But what the numbers show is not only did they not do better. They should have just left good enough alone and they would have done better, right? I mean, they could have just done nothing. So what they identified as cost synergies, to Ben's earlier point, appear to be actually things that were not cost synergies, critical resources necessary to grow the business. And so it is, uh, it's an interesting, I'd be curious to see who they, what, who do they identify as synergies? What did they do? Because they clearly screwed it up. They screwed up a business that was actually growing quite fast. And not only did they extract sort of the new either user experience or product delivery or whatever uh, to the customer, but they actually got rid of something that the customer really wanted before, which could have been the sales force, but it could also be a cost side, right? Maybe it's it could very well be that uh, market share shifted because they got rid of uh, a lot of the technology back office or they got rid of co content creators and they thought those those people were synergies, and it turns out they were actually what you know users and customers wanted. And so people basically left WorldPay or, or FIS to go to Fiserv's business, and that's why Fiserv's continued to grow. Some of this, the decline could be a slowdown of the general economy, right? And so the relative growth rates is actually more interesting than the absolute. Maybe this is, it could be something about uh, regional exposure. You know, maybe one's more regionally exposed to one area than another. Different client base. Okay, one's got more technology or telco companies, and they've been hit. Who knows? But I suppose aside from those things, which are possibilities. In this kind of situation, normally you could get away with it as a management team of saying, we missed something during due diligence and the, and the people we, we did that were fired or there was some underlying thing that wasn't exposed um, that, that's now, and we've delivered our synergies, we've done our bit, but something else has gone wrong. In this case, they can't do that yeah. or it's much harder to do that because actually, yeah, somebody else has done it and they haven't had the same issue. Yeah. yeah. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it would be interesting to understand over time. And I think the shareholders, this is one, and I hate to resort to my go-to move on this, but this is one where an activist would, it, had they not decided to spin it out, which is sort of the standard strategy if something isn't working, an activist would have come and basically said, whatever you, 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 whatever you did is the wrong thing. Now, let's, let's just do the opposite, to use an old Seinfeld uh, George Costanza quote. I was going to explore one thing on this, which is just about the trajectory of world pay generally. I, I saw a really interesting interview with a guy called Nick Ogden, who was the founder of world pay. And he talked a bit about this extraordinary growth rate that they went through from, you know, 20 to 200 employees in 18 months from, you know, zero to $2 billion worth of transactions to a presence of in 118 different countries in that incredibly short 18 months type period before they sold it uh, to, to RBS, uh, founded it in, 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 in that West world. It, is, is this also a situation of a business that's just grown too quickly 
for any sort of real infrastructure shape to come into it. And, and the, the, that you're, this is almost guaranteed to happen um, because basically everything else has just been left behind um, as the organization goes through, you know. Um, and, and maybe, you know, to your point, Abby, that the, the, they're firing people because they don't actually know what the hell those people do because it's never been written in the job description, just as a basic example. And actually they've got really important deep relationships that, just aren't identified as part of the, the diligence process. I think what you're touching upon, Ben, is something that it is the epistemic problem of post-merger integration that people presume to know more than they do about the business that they're buying and what it would take to make it work. And then they get in there and suddenly realize that they really didn't. And, you know, and all, all of us in, in the audience have appreciated the fact that managers and especially senior managers have a hard time admitting to not knowing things, right? Because it looks like you're not a leader if you can, if you say, I really don't understand what's going on here. And so they sort of confidently go into, into a, uh, into a buzzsaw, screw it up and then find, you know, get a communications consultant to explain why this wasn't really their fault, but it was the market or something else. And so, I feel like this is sort of a classic example, and and it would be an example of understanding what steps they did take, or, you know, one could forensically go back now and say, well, what did you say you were going to do? Maybe try to piece out in their public disclosures what they actually did in terms of headcount and and stuff, and then. But the other, there is an other, more forgiving explanation, and this also is plausible, which is the following: WorldPay when before they sold deferred a ton of CapEx to make themselves look like they were creating a lot of cash, throwing out cash, right? But, you know, maybe the systems were getting old. Maybe they needed to hire new coding people. The new version of the technology was going to come out, but they sort of delayed it in order to show that they were profitable. And they were their growth rate that they were showing to FIS was basically based on the last version, which was still sort of in momentum. And then once the acquisition happened, the FIS people got, came in and realized, look, we need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to either upgrade the technology or make investments in people. And they didn't realize this. It wasn't in the in post-merger plan. And suddenly they're stuck with a question of, do we let it, do we let revenue grow, growth slow down and not invest? Or do we basically double down and put the capital in and maybe they sort of thought about it and said, look, this is not a business that we can fund the growth of because technology companies, especially on the merchant side, which is a rapidly changing business, is actually uh, takes a lot of capital. It's constantly evolving, right? I mean, you have you know, like Shopify and a lot of other payment systems competing. And so I wonder whether they got in and just realized that this was, they were sort of, I don't want to say that they were played because I'm sure legally disclosures were made, but I think they didn't appreciate what it would take. And then the best thing to do is to spin it out and let somebody else deal with it. I get it. And you know, if you're if you've paid 24 times, which is what they paid, right? You would you would be forgiven saying, well, how much more capital do we need actually to be honest to, to make this thing move, right? That's a that's a big number, right? Yeah. We're still comparing two cases, one that was successful and one that failed. So yeah. what you know, somehow company A got it right and did their homework and and put their numbers together and, and you know how do we go about this i'm wondering whether then the other company says my goodness my my competitor's doing this it must be right have they just jumped into that and paid whatever <laughs> it's overpaid and not actually thought through 
um, something which may be the successful company had been, you know, doing over for, for, for more than a year of actually, you know, if we do this, what would be the steps? Where do we get the value? Etc. And then somebody else thinks, my goodness, you know, if we don't do this now, the train has passed. Let's yeah, jump I mean, it's, on it. It's, it's the advisor's easiest thing. It? Say whatever we bought. It's yeah, they got. Uh, but you know what Paul brings up is the old adage that uh, applies to fund man pension fund managers. It also applies to CEOs, which is it's better to fail together than to succeed alone. And so if 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 your competitor did something, it's better as a CEO for you to do the same thing if you can because. If every if it, if they both go wrong, you can be like, well, it was the market or whatever. Look at look at our peers; they also aren't doing great. But if God forbid, if your competitor does something and it works, and you don't do it, you'll be fired, right? You didn't take action in an evolving industry. You didn't get into electrical vehicles at the time or whatever. So as long as you mimic your peers, your job's sort of safe as a CEO and as a board. It's easier to sort of go to bed at night wondering you know, comfortable in that thought. And so maybe this is like a case study of that. But uh, your point is well taken, Paul. I, I love it. it makes me think of, um, I was working on the management team and the the mantra was, we're going to grow the market. It's so destructive to be trying to still share. Let's get out and grow the market. And that was, you know, reinforced at every event and every presentation but actually when you got onto the calls every month to say how you were doing in your local market you know how is it going in singapore how is it going in france uh the the immediate benchmark was i got three percent this quarter but actually i know I, our number one competitor only got one percent and it was always that preferential so they were saying they were going in the market but actually just the dynamics of how those management calls went it was always referring yourself to competitor so it was hence stealing share was the number one way to get revenue because you got the double win you got the growth and and the, the numbers of your competitors went down but i mean i the other thing i was just going to just talk to which is that it must be the advisor's easiest gig in the world to persuade the CEO of a business that hasn't made an acquisition in a sector which is rapidly consolidating. Look, it's $110 billion worth of transaction in you know an 18 months to two year period. Say, come on, guys, what are you doing, right? I mean, it, it, there is no lose there, right? As an investment banker, I will tell you that there's nothing easier to sell than to mimic your peers' transactions early in the cycle. Because, and the other is, and this is an adage, right? You know, there's, there's a, um, the bias for action is viewed as a virtue across everything. It, it's better to do something than nothing. And people who do things get viewed as visionaries. Think about how the great, nobody actually ever celebrates the CEO that has done absolutely nothing. And so even CEOs and boards thinking about their legacy there is this enormous bias to do things. And so you have two factors. One, it, you know, there's this old, uh, in persuasion theory, there's a psychologist named Robert Cialdini. And he wrote this biblical, biblically important book in marketing and persuasion called uh, Influence. And in it, he talks about these almost mechanical tricks that the human mind is designed to sort of take on that con men and salespeople all, all adopt. But the, one of the most important is conformity. That if everybody else is doing it, it gives you social proof, and I think that's the term he uses, that what, what's happening is right. And it turns out that CEOs and boards are not impervious to social proof. And in fact, so like, you know, if you go to an investment banking pitch, the first page is an analysis of all the other transactions in your industry that have happened recently. And when people see this list and then they realize that they're not on it, 
it does create this almost vacuum that they have to fill to say, okay, we got to do something, right? Otherwise, I'll get viewed as the person who sort of slept on the job. And so the, there is this uh, weird psychological thing. And so you're right. Yeah, I mean, you could, one could, it is, uh, it's surprising so much so that there is a, the only person who's argued against it is Warren Buffett, where he says that every deal should have a banker pitching why the deal should happen. And you should hire a devil's advocate and pay that devil's advocate to do the same diligence work and make an equivalent case as to why they shouldn't do the deal. The problem is nobody wants to pay somebody to not do a to argue not to do the deal. And that's the loneliest job in the world. And, you know, the argument is that it's it's absolutely I mean it's it's I'm not just to plug my book for a second, but I will plug my book for a second. But there's a there's a there's a comment in there about companies who are good at integration, which is that they have a black hat in the room. You look at it, it's it's almost consistent across the 120 case studies that I looked at, um, where there is someone in there who's poking holes at it and saying, This does not work. Why are you doing it like this? What's the what's the reason for that? And they're often they're they're often internal, they're not external people, which is even more crazy if you think about it. So there's someone who's made a living out of sitting in a company and poking sticks at stuff. It's it's fabulous. Uh, it's really interesting, right? That's a that's a great, I mean, I would be interested to, to, to do a study of companies that have such black hats versus those that don't and see if they are less prone to making errors. One question I had for, for the three of you is, it is almost, given the magnitude of the deal, it is almost a metaphysical certainty that these companies both had external advisors, consultants to assist with the merger integration, and you, you can't do it alone, right? So they definitely had all these. What do you think went wrong there? Like what? So let's imagine you know, the three of you were brought into the situation. What do you think? And without casting blame on any advisor by any means, but what do you think? Sometimes do, have you walked into situations that were that you walked in and you're like, "This is going to be hard to do." This is either the mindset or the fact pattern. What's what's been promised to the market is not something that is going to work. And what do you think, put me in the shoes of the advisors, if you would, uh, that are in, you know, on the FIS side. The advisor who, who supports the deal, so it doesn't say this is a, you know, dead duck, let's forget about it, um, usually has some more work to do on it afterwards when it goes ahead. So you're actually creating business. I think it takes a lot of courage. I've seen a few um acquisitions that went pear-shaped in, in a group in which I worked, which I should not mention right now, but where you have a, a business development department and their job is to find opportunities for external growth. And my observation is that as you go through due diligence, um, if you do it very well, you will find quite a few nasty snags. Uh, but there's always a, oh, you know, we can overcome this because otherwise you've been working on something and, you know, you're in the business development department at the end of the year there's been no acquisition i'll sort of say well abby you know what have you actually produced for the company so you've got to buy something um and, and you'll buy something which is probably a bit of a dead duck and it, i think it's the accumulation of all the the snags each one by itself or most of them you'll sort of say yes you know this is, we can we can circumvent this or we found a solution or you know or we can live with it but you, it can be death by a thousand cuts if you've got too many of those <laughs> that basically, and I think the same for the advisors, you do all the work and suddenly, you know, after months and months of going through numbers and stuff, you actually say, 
no, let's forget about this. So a lot of money has gone down the drain, but that's okay. Um, and where people don't have the right courage is to say, well, we've lost enough money on this thing without going ahead and ending up in a bit of a disaster. Two questions, follow-up. Mm. Do you think in all these cases, it was the same advisors who were there on the front end advising them to do the deal? Not, I'm not talking the bankers, but I'm talking about the people who did develop the strategy, the outside. I'm sure these people hired some well-known strategy consulting firm or whatever to help. And then that was the same firm that helped in the integration, or did they have... Is that is that the norm, or do you I think it's the, the norm is you've got separate advisors each side. Um, even if you had the same firm, you'd find it was a different team that was doing both sides. Yeah. I, so for, just on that, there are clearly strategy consulting consultancies that are trying to get into integration work. Um, very famous ones, the ones that begin with M and B are two that I can think of at this stage. Um, <laughs> um, and they often get the 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 acquirer of the of the services gets frightened away because. M in particular puts the same price on on integration as they do for strategy. Which if you if you extrapolate the time they spend on the deal, it just it's madness the amount of money that they're trying to spend uh, on that on that particular transaction. And they're pretty shit at it. You know, I mean, I've walked in on lots of transactions where um, they've been involved early on, and it's just not gone very well. Um, so I think so 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 they're trying to do both, right? Which is you know good for them it's great for for their for their income stream um it's it's good longevity in the business right um i i just on the on the issue of what what goes wrong why why do they not identify it early i mean i, th I just think fundamentally it's become a commoditized product for an awful lot of advisors out there that say, right, we need another one of those, whether that's a, you know, putting a PMO in place, whether it's putting a, um, you know, a, 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 some sort of reporting system in place. I know, David, you've had some interesting experiences around that, whether it's a functional integration program, they're just going to roll it off the shelf and say, this is how we do it. As opposed to actually looking at the deal and saying, there is a really fundamental issue here that we need to deal with. And unless we deal with that, we're gonna, everything else is going to get screwed up. I just don't think that happens very much anymore. Maybe that's the leverage challenge too, which is that it's often done by people who who are quite far down the food chain and perhaps don't have the experience to do. Yeah, EY. So, EY, let's just do a quick scenario. on. So everyone knows the deals uh, fail, it's, it's been, has been pulled. Uh, there's lots of acrimony in the papers, both in the UK and in the US, around why it happened. Uh, I, I, interesting, I saw that the managing partner in the UK already um, forecast the fact that they're going to have to take some costs out of the business to reflect it. I think they spent something like $400 million uh, on the transaction. They're saying some of that, a lot of that was internal. But, you know, the reality is there's an opportunity cost for that internal team that could have done other things. Um, uh, and these are these won't be cheap resources, right, that have been working on this transaction for a while. So they're talking about that um, as a deal. I just, I, I would love your views on the on the consequences of this separation being pulled. I love it because it's the advisors who've advised themselves and given, given themselves wrong advice and their faces should be very red on the market. And if I was a client of EY, uh, um, I, I would be quite annoyed because they must have been very self-absorbed during all this time. 
thinking about what they will get and you know how much money they can pocket and run away and so on instead of actually we, we discussed this when when they wanted to go ahead where i sort of said this is not very good news for for clients but now for them to have developed this amazing strategy and you know it's going to be a win-win win-win-win or whatever and suddenly they realize it's a bit of a disaster is uh is embarrassing to say the least i mean what do you think the consequences of this failing is going to be well before i tell you the consequences i think i was thinking reading this that I would like the producers of that TV show Succession to make this into a series. And I would watch that series because here you have Carmine DeCivio. He's got a big transaction. He has three daughters, so to speak, in companies. You got the audit people, you got the tax people, then you have the consulting people. They all want to go their separate ways. Um, so you have you have the dynamics between the audit people who want to keep the tax with them and the consultants want to keep the tax with them. And so it's a beautiful political uh, fight. Like this has nothing to do with the underlying fundamental logic strategically of anything. This has to do with the audit. The U.S. audit people got pissed and said NFW. And that's that's basically and shut this down. And everything that they and they spent. I was just thinking, what did they spend $400 million doing? Like, what exactly? I'd like to get into that. I don't know what advice they were getting that they couldn't insource, as Paul says. Like, they literally exactly, hired, yeah. like, outside. Surely that was internal consulting fees, wasn't it? Yeah. How it was. Uh, no, there's so a big that... chunk that was internal. There's a big chunk inter internal. I, you, you're almost destroying a sort of Lear-type story. I love that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the, and, but, the, the, but the most bizarre, Ben, is... The, the sexiest business, which in my life, I never thought I would ever come to say this out loud, is tax. When, when The sexiest business, the one that everybody wanted to partner with and be with was tax. And it was the failure to figure out who gets tax that caused this whole thing to collapse. So the, the, the ugly sisters were, in fact, audit consulting, but Cinderella was tax. I love that. I love that. Go figure. That. That's brilliant. David, what do you think? What's the consequences of this deal? Well, yeah, before we wrap if up. I think back to our, what we talked about last time, it was a divorce, you know, and fundamentally one of the angles was the relationship had broken down between consulting and audit side of businesses that led to the separation. And it feels like that tax is the summer house or it's the Porsche. It's the one thing that both parties want. It's it's and the kid. It's like yeah. battle. <laughs> yes, it's a custody battle. So what they've decided to do is stay together. Now we know that in that in a real world situation between a marriage, you decide the couple are going to stay together because they both want the summer <laughs> house. And that's not going to go well in the next five years. So I think we'll have we'll be talking about this one again. Is my prediction. I love it. I love it. That's fabulous. I think that's a that, great I love summary. That too. That's a great analogy. And, and the consequences. Yeah, once you decide to divorce, you really can't stick it out again just because you want to keep uh, keep the summer house together. So that's a good point. In a broader way, there's also, I think, an interesting point um, of companies that have made, you know, for 10 years ago or whatever, a huge uh, a huge merger and become bigger and, and they had all the good reasons for doing so. This was the business case. And then 10 years later, uh, they reversed completely the business case to separate. I mean, you look at, you know, Novartis and, and Sandor, um, when they got together, it was there were all, good, all, all good reasons, and now you know they're going to separate. Well, that's the theme. Of, that's the theme of this episode, right? Because that's what's happening with FIS and WorldPay. Absolutely, fab. I think we'll wrap it there, guys. Brilliant. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to talk to us or get in touch, uh, we're available on LinkedIn and Twitter. And please listen into future podcasts. Thanks. <laughs>